Okay, turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 6. We're looking at the, what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, but I prefer the term model prayer in uh, uh, verses 9 to 13. We're, gonna, we're, we're looking at verse 9, and uh, then we'll finish that up and move into 10. Let me, uh, let's read verse 9 again, and I want to review some of what we covered last week. And to lead into the finishing up the verse, he says, Jesus says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the prayer begins, pray then in this way. The NLT simply puts it, pray like this. Uh, the idea behind it is pray along these lines. And then Jesus begins by saying, our Father who is in heaven. Uh, prayer begins with a recognition that God is our Father. Uh, liberals teach that God is everyone's father. We're all God's children. Uh, well, there's only one sense in which that is true, and that is in the sense that he is our creator. We are only children of God universally insofar as we have been created by God. Spiritually, unbelievers have another father. Who's that? Satan, the devil. Jesus told the Jewish religious leadership, you're of your father, the devil. Uh, there's, there's not simply one family of mankind under one universal fatherhood of God. Uh, there are two families in the world, the children of God and the children of the devil. Uh, our father is an affirmation of an intimacy with God that is wonderful because for the world, the God or gods that they worship are very distant, remote, and fearful. Uh, he or she is usually quite unknowable. Uh, but Jesus brought us into an intimacy with God as our Father. Uh, at the time he was here, most Jews had lost the sense of God's intimate fatherhood. It became a blasphemous thing to them to even mention the name of God. And so when Jesus utters the term, our Father, it's shocking to them. Uh, for the scribes and Pharisees to think of God as a Father was a very empty thought. Uh, they never referred to God by the term Father. Uh, they called him exalted uh, Lord, uh, sovereign Lord, King of the universe. So when Jesus used this term to refer to God, and he would have used the Aramaic word Abba, uh, the Jews would have been astounded. They worshipped God like he was a distant king who didn't even have a close attachment to his subjects. But Jesus called him Abba. Father, uh, we're to think of him in terms of having a close relationship, uh, of us having a close relationship with a loving, kind, compassionate father who we can trust with our very lives. He holds us accountable. He disciplines us like every good father does with his children, but he shows us mercy and grace like no human father ever can. So we summed up last week what it meant when we said that God is our father. We said it means the end of fear. It means it settles uncertainties and brings hope. It settles the matter of loneliness. It settles the matter of selfishness. It settles the matter of resources. Uh, he's not dependent on the world's resources. Everything in heaven's available to him. He's a loving father who has all the resources of heaven. And it, <clears throat> it settles the matter of obedience. We said if we expect earthly children to obey earthly fathers, uh, who are unworthy sinners, 
aren't we expected to obey our perfect heavenly father uh, who is of infinite worth? And so then to begin the prayer, our father who is in heaven is to indicate my eagerness to come as a child beloved to a loving father to receive all that is the, of his love that he can possibly give me. And then we look, began looking at the, the next part found at the end of verse 9. Yes, Charlie. Bruce, could you please go over all the, the, the matters that it settles real quick? Okay. Again? Last week at the, at the choir, we came in on obedience. And I didn't get the... That was the end of it. Was, well, uh, the end of fear. Yeah, fear. Yeah. Fear. Uncertainty. Right. Loneliness. Right. Selfishness. Yeah. Resources. And obedience. Okay. Uh, when he says, "Hallowed be your name," uh, we recognize we're recognizing that God is holy, and He is to be the priority of our prayers. Uh, true worship begins with God. True worship is forgetting self and glorifying Him. Uh, you don't go to God in prayer demanding anything. Uh, commanding God to affirm everything that you say that you will receive it. Uh, prayer has as its purpose the uplifting of God, uh, the recognition of God's rightful place in your life and in this universe and the manifestation of his majesty and his sovereign will. So to say hallowed be your name puts God in the priority place. Uh, even though he is my loving father, even though he cares to meet my needs, and even though he has heavenly resources to do that, my first petition is not on my own behalf. It is on his. Hallowed be your name is a warning against self-seeking prayer at the very beginning. God has the priority. And we talked about how God revealed his name. He says, hallowed be your name. He revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush. And we, we talked about last week uh, what is known as the Tetragrammaton, which means simply four letters. And those four letters are YHWH. Uh, and we talked about how the Jews refused to read the name of God, uh, the Tetragrammaton, when they came to it in the scriptures. And that's really, you know, they came to it a lot. It's used 6,800 times in the Old Testament. And so... They refused to use it, read it. So what they did was they said the word Adonai in its place. Adonai is another word that means Lord. And uh, in order to provide a way for them not to slip up and say the Tetragrammaton, the name of God, they, they uh, decided to put the vowel pointers for the word Adonai into the Tetragrammaton as a just a reminder for themselves, that when they got there, read, say the word Adonai. And uh, uh, 500 years later, uh, Galatinus misunderstood what the Masoretes had done, and he looked at the Tetragrammaton with the vowel pointers from Adonai, and when you put those together, it comes out with this word Jehovah. And he thought that the name of God was Jehovah. Uh, because that was be the pronunciation of te the, the Tetragrammaton with those vowels from Adonai. Uh, but, folks, Jehovah is not the name of God. Uh, the scholars tell us that the more likely and proper pronunciation of God's name is Yahweh. And 
Uh, most modern English translations throw in the word Lord, uh, which is really a custom originally initiated by the Septuagint and uh, perpetuated in the Latin Vulgate. Uh, so the, uh, but that is his name. So why didn't the Jews want to call God by his name Yahweh? Because they considered that to be holding the name of God as sacred. But the truth was they had reduced it down to just a name, not to God's person and will. So they wouldn't say Yahweh. Uh, but while the Jews of Jesus' time were so careful not to say the name, at the same time, they constantly blasphemed who he was by their failure to obey his law from the heart rather than just by their outward conformity. Uh, so what Jesus is teaching here is that hallowing God's name is to respect him for who he is, not just his name. It's an all-encompassing concept. God's name signifies infinitely more than his titles and designations. It represents all that he is, his character, his plan, his will. And we looked at passages such as Exodus 34, Psalm 910, uh, Psalm 717, Psalm 102.15, that all talk about the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh. But the key verse to understanding the concept of God's name is found in John 17.6. And that's where Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer right before his betrayal and crucifixion. And he says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave to me out of the world. Now, what did he mean? I've manifested your name. He meant... I have revealed who you are. I've revealed who you are. So God's name is not merely a title. God's name is the sum total of all that he is. And we looked at a whole bunch of different names that are in scripture right at the very end of class. Uh, but the greatest name that God ever took, the greatest name by which God has ever been designated in human history is this name, Yeshua, uh, which means savior, deliverer. It actually transliterates the English name Joshua. But the Greek transliteration of that name of Yeshua was Jesus, which comes over into English as Jesus. And as the Lord Jesus Christ, he called himself by many other names too. He called himself the bread of life, the living water, the way, the truth, the life the resurrection, the good shepherd, the branch, the bright and morning star, the Lamb of God, many, many more. And all of those names touched on various attributes of his character so that when we speak of God in his name, we're not talking about a title. We're talking about the fullness of who he is. We, This time of the year, we hear constantly Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, For unto us... A child is born unto us, a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Those are all designations of his nature. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.5 that he and other apostles had received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. In 3 John 7 speaks of helping traveling evangelists and missionaries who went out for the sake of the name. So his name is just not a title. It's all that he is. But what does it mean to hallow his name? We hear that word 
We wonder what it means. After all, it isn't normally used in our language today, except in the word Halloween, uh, a word which is a, contradict, a contraction of uh, Hallowed Eve. Uh, and that's because it is the day, the Eve of All Saints Day. So it was considered a Hallowed Eve. Uh, but what does the word hallow mean? Well, it's an archaic word which comes from the Greek verb, which means to make holy, to sanctify. Uh, the noun form of the word means holy. So it means, holy be your name. Uh, that's what hallowed means. Now, there are two basic ideas with this word. It can mean to make an unholy thing into something which is holy. That's how it's used in 1 Peter 1.16, where Peter says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Uh, what does that mean? It means that we're unholy to start with, but by coming into contact with the one who is holy, we can be made holy. Uh, so one idea behind this word is to, to make something which is unholy into something which is holy in, by contact with that which is holy. But in this model prayer, Jesus is using the, is, isn't not using the word that way, obviously. Uh, the second way this word is used many more times in Scripture is in reference to treating something or someone as sacred, to hold something or someone as set apart and holy, to regard someone as separated. In other words, in the case of men, it is to make something holy. In the case of God, it is to regard him as holy. When you say, holy be your name to God, you are saying, May your name be regarded and revered as holy. We don't make God holy. Uh, he, we simply petition that he be revered and regarded as holy because that is already his nature. It is to attribute to God the holiness that already is and always has been and is supremely and uniquely his. Now, what does it mean to be holy? What does that term mean? Separated. Separated. Yes. Uh, when someone is holy, he's different, right? Uh, he lives with a different quality of being. Holy means to be set apart, to be different, to have another sphere of living, to exist in another quality of being. That's basically what it means to be holy. God lives in a, another sphere. God exists at a different level. God is separated from us. God is uncommon, extraordinary, unearthly, separated from sinners, holy and undefiled, the Bible says. He is holy, set apart from us. Now, out of that word comes the idea of reverence. When we pray this first petition, we are speaking to God in terms of reverence. We're saying, may your person be revered. May we come to you in reverence. Let me show you an illustration. Turn with me back to Numbers chapter 20. Back there in the clean portion of your Bible. <clears throat> the white, clean pages of your Bible. Numbers 20. Here we find that the children of Israel are in the wilderness and they're getting very thirsty and there isn't any water. Let's start at verse 2. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against 
Moses and Aaron. Notice that the first thing they did was to immediately turn against their leaders. They blamed them for the lack of water. Verses 3 through 5. The people then thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, for there's no water to drink. So this, this bunch of rebellious Israelites are whining and complaining about the lack of food and water. Let's read starting verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So God tells Moses, Get over there, stand by that rock, and speak to it, and I'll bring water out of it. Look what happened, beginning in verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Now what did God send Moses out to do? Speak. To speak. What's he doing here? He's hitting the rock. And by the way, God didn't make the whole congregation pay for Moses' sin. Because it says, so water came out abundantly and the congregation and their beast drank. <coughs> now all of that was background to what I want you to see in verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy. That's the same word in the Septuagint. To see me as one to be reverenced, to be revered, to be honored, to be glorified, to be set apart, to be obeyed. Because you didn't do that in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And so Moses never entered the promised land because he hit the rock. In effect, Moses says, well, I'm not sure about this. Last time I hit the rock. I don't know whether God will do it if I don't hit it. God, Moses wanted to affirm in the minds of the people that he was their hero, their leader, who would take care of them. And how could God do it with just a spoken word when the visual image of Moses striking the rock would be so much more impressive? and really put to rest their complaints about his leadership. But he was stealing the glory from God because he was disobeying God's command. He was not reverencing God. He didn't hallow God. He didn't treat God as holy, as it says in verse 12. And so we see that to hallow God's name means to hold his matchless being in reverence so that you will believe what he says and obey what he commands. In 1 Peter 3.15, uh, the apostle says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. 
he uses the same word that's translated hallowed here in Matthew 6.9. Treat God as holy, set apart, extraordinary, worthy to be adored and praised and glorified. So we are to hallow our Father God as well as our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to set God apart from everything that is common and profane. You cannot speak of God in earthly terms as though he's just a man like you. He is not the man upstairs. You can't drag God down to common human terms. God must have titles that are fitting for his power and his holiness. But it's so easy to go through life just saying, hallowed be your name, and to have no idea what we're even saying. The truth of such a petition is that God is to have the priority place above all else in the universe. What did Isaiah tell us that the seraphim in the holy throne room continuously cry out? Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in the same way, our hearts are to longingly seek to have him glorified, to have him honored in every situation, every circumstance, every relationship. So then that's what it means to hallow his name. But how do we do that? This is the most important part of this lesson, so listen up. This is the practical application. How do we hallow his name? What are we really saying when we say, hallowed be your name? Well, first of all, understand that this is a petition that I'm asking of him. I'm I'm saying, God, let your name be hallowed. And the implication is that it takes place through me. In other words, let your name be hallowed in my life. Let your name be made holy in my life, in my presence. How? Let me give you four ways that we hallow God's name in our lives, and I want you to follow the progression of these four. Number one, we hallow his name when we believe he exists. We hallow his name when we believe he exists. Hebrews 11.6 says, He who comes to God must believe that he is. You can never honor God unless you believe that he exists. That's where it all begins. And by the way, the scriptures never try to prove that. Do you ever notice that? Why not? Because the existence of God is self-evident. God is axiomatic. An axiom is something that doesn't need to be proven because it's obvious and self-evidently true. An axiom is that against which other things are proven. Uh, uh, God God is an axiom in the Bible. God is never proven. Everything else is proven as it relates to God. God is the axiom. God is self-evident. The Bible writers never seek to prove God's existence. They just believe it. And you'll never hallow God until you believe that he is. Number two, we hallow God's name by knowing the kind of God that he is. We hallow God's name by knowing the kind of God that he is. There are many people who say, I believe in God, 
but they don't hallow his name because they don't believe in the God who was found in Scripture. They're idol worshipers because the God they worship is one of their own design. True doctrine and true teaching about God are reverence for God. False doctrine and false teaching about God are irreverence. People think that you take the Lord's name in vain when you say Jesus Christ or God or something like that. But did you know that you take the Lord's name in vain every time you think a thought about God that is not true about him? When you doubt God, when you disbelieve God, when you question God about why he did something with an attitude that you know better than him, you're taking his name in vain because that's not true of his character. That's not true of his name. So you hallow God's name when you believe that he is, but only if you believe that he is who he really is. Illicit wrong thoughts about God do not hallow his name. Origen, the early church father, said, quote, the man who brings into his concept of God ideas that have no place there takes the name of the Lord God in vain, end quote. You know, even Job fell into that trap. Uh, after initially accepting all that had come to him with the right attitude, as time went by and his three so-called friends kept feeding him lies about how God was punishing him for sin, Job began to complain that God must not really love him. In Job 30, verses 20 and 21, he says, I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. So he accused God of being unloving. And people do the same thing today. They accuse God of indiscriminately banishing people to an eternal hell. They see God as Israel's national ally who ordered them to slaughter other people without a valid reason. Listen, when you think wrong thoughts like that about God, when you don't understand who God really is, you have not hallowed his name. One day, John Wesley listened to a bunch of those kind of critics, and after listening for a while, he finally told them, your God is the devil. I think you've got him reversed. So to allow into your conception of God things that are wrong and unworthy of God is to irreverence his holy name. As, and Christians can do this not only by thinking wrong thoughts about God, but by being ignorant of the right thoughts. Because if you're ignorant of what God is like, then you're going to doubt him when he does certain things. You're going to question him when he acts in a way that you don't like. You're not going to trust him. You're going to be disobedient. And you're going to cause others to turn away from God. And in all of that, you are being irreverent towards God. I once had a young man who was in the Marines come to me because he said that he wanted to talk to me about problems he was having with some of his family members. 
Within a very short period of time, I figured out that his family wasn't the problem. He was. And it was all because he was angry with God. You see, this young man was from a family with godly Christian parents who took him to church his whole life. But while he was deployed to Iraq, his father unexpectedly died here at home. Now, he loved his father. He admired his father. His father was the most important person in all of life to him. And when his dad died, he became very angry with God. And his anger and bitterness toward God resulted in him causing all kinds of problems in his family with his mother and his siblings. In fact, he even admitted to me that he knew he wasn't truly a Christian because he could never love and obey a God who would take away his father. He said he would only believe in a God who would let his father live. And since God didn't do that, he wanted nothing to do with him. I told him very bluntly that his problem with his family members was not them but him, and that unless he repented of his sin, including his hatred of God and turned to Jesus Christ in humble saving faith, he would spend eternity in hell. He looked me dead in the eye and he said, I can't do that. I'm just so angry at him. Folks, that is the epitome of irreverence towards God. He wanted a God who did what he wanted. And when God didn't act that way, the rebellion that was already in his heart became open and antagonistic. And the result was bitterness and division in his family, which he caused. Even then, he blamed the rest of his family for the problem because they didn't feel the same way towards God for his father's death like he did. My point is that in order to hallow God's name, you must not only believe that he exists, but you must also know what kind of God he is and willingly submit to him regardless of how his actions impact you. Number three, we hallow his name when we are constantly aware of his presence. We hallow his name when we are constantly aware of his presence. What I mean is that when we believe that God exists and we know what kind of God he is, then we need to bring that into our consciousness so that we live every day of our lives giving him the rightful place in our lives. In Psalm 16:8, David said, I have set the Lord continually before me. We are to see everything through God. As the hymn writer said, be thou my vision. That's the key. How about you? To reverence God is to live with a continual awareness of him. For most of us, our thoughts about God are rather spasmodic. Uh, sometimes they're very intense. Other times they're totally absent. Some days we think about God a lot, such as on Sundays. But other days, Monday through Friday, we may go a long time with very few thoughts about God. That's why it's so important that we spend time in the Word every day. It keeps us thinking about God, being aware of His presence, 
To really hallow his name is to draw conscious thoughts of God into everything we think about every day. Do you see God at every moment in your life? Do you hallow his name in your living? Is he constantly visible in everything you do, everything you say, everywhere you go? To hallow God means that we must believe that he is, that we must believe that he is who he is, and that we must be constantly aware of his presence. But you know something? You can do all three of those things and still not reverence God if you didn't do the fourth thing. And that is we hallow God's name when we live a life of obedience to him. We hallow God's name when we live a life of obedience to him. That's the final key. You cannot come to the fullness of hallowing his name unless you obey him. To say, oh yes, I believe that you exist. I believe that you are who the Bible says you are. I'm aware of your presence in my life. But then to disobey him cuts off the capability of a person to reverence his name. You see, prayer is not just that God's name be hallowed in heaven. It's not just that God's name be hallowed around the world. It's that God's name be hallowed in me. That's what it is. This is a prayer that says, Lord, may I be a vessel for your holiness. That's where the prayer begins. Before you start asking for what you think you should get, you need to ask for what you should be. In Martin Luther's catechism, a question is asked, how is God's name hallowed? And the answer Luther gave is this, God's name is hallowed when his word is taught in its truth and purity, and we see the children of God live holy lives according to it. You see, when you have the right thoughts about God, and you do the right deeds before God, you're hallowing his name. So the first part of the prayer is, God, teach me your truth and help me to live it. Hallowed be your name means to make your name holy in me. Manifest your holiness by my right knowledge of who you are and my right living in response to it. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what 1 Corinthians 10.31 is all about. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Hallowed be your name means God be on display through me. Let the light shine through me so that they may glorify you. How do you do that? How do you obey in that way? How do you let, really let God be made manifest? By living in obedience to his word. We glorify God by confessing him as Lord, by confessing sin, by bearing fruit, by praise, by contentment, by proclaiming his truth, by evangelism, by sexual purity, by unity. And the list goes on and on, all the different ways that we can demonstrate the majesty and the glory of God so that others who see us will make the right judgment about who God is and be drawn to him. Well, that's God's person. He is our Father who is in heaven, whose name is holy, 
and is to be manifested in our lives by holiness. So let me pause there before we start looking at the next verse and ask you any questions or comments before we go on. Yes, Lisa. I was just thinking like walking with so that would include um, when we are aware of his presence and our obedience. Mm-hmm. 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 The idea of walking in obedience, uh, walking, we walk with him, as he talks about over there in Ephesians. <clears throat> That's the idea of obedience. We're doing what he says. Okay. In uh, 1 Chronicles 13, 11, through 12, 11 and 12 there, it's whenever David was bringing the ark, it rocked. Mm-hmm. Uzziah grabbed it, and God killed him. And it says that David was displeased, displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzziah. And then it says in 12, David was afraid of God that day. Mm-hmm. What, what was that about? You about said first, uh, first Chronicles? First Chronicles 13, 11, and 12. Actually, 12 there is it. I mean, when he says in 11, when he says he was displeased, and then when he says that he was afraid of God, um, it, it, I take it to be is that holy fear. It really yeah, in, in 13, that is clear, or, or 12, that is clearly holy fear. Because he says, how can I bring the ark of God back to me? He's recognizing his own unworthiness. <coughs> And, and he recognizes how holy God really is because if God is so holy that he would strike someone dead for reaching out and touching to to the ark to balance it, then he is totally set apart from all that is human. And so David is clearly, uh, his first response is anger. And I, I like the New American Standards translation better there instead of you, the, your King James says displeased. Well, I can be displeased with somebody, but not come across as angry. But the New American Standard translates the word as it should be, which is angry. He's angry at God. And then then he suddenly wakes up and realizes, whoa, wait a minute. This God is not somebody to trifle with, not somebody I ought to get angry at. In fact, he's so set apart from me that he just killed somebody for such a simple thing. He is totally set apart. He's totally holy from, from mankind. And then he's fearful of... Uh, I just uh, found those verses very powerful. Okay. Barry. I'm just trying to remember, but uh, wasn't he transporting that wrongly too or something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. Okay. Oh, yes. I know uh, something that helps me a great deal is from time to time, sometimes in my prayers, sometimes as I'm just going through driving down the road or whatever, is to just review in my mind the attributes of God. Mm-hmm. His mm-hmm. self-existence, his all-knowing, his all-talk, things that we can't begin to grasp. Right. But just thinking about it humbles me. Yes. Me. Yes. To think that, I mean, if you really want to get a grasp of how great God is, think of, do a little study in astronomy and understand what a 
speck of dust the earth is in terms of the entire universe. You know, that last estimate, they say there's approximately 100 million stars in every galaxy, and they now say there are a hundred billion, billion, not million, hundred billion galaxies. No, that is, that is just, and, and yet God chose to create earth and man and all that is, and he sustains it all. And he's so much bigger than that. Okay. Not the issue of anger go back to Cain. Oh yeah, all the way to the garden. All the way. So all the way to the garden with Cain killing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've got about five minutes or so, so let me start talking a little bit. We'll introduce verse 10. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We first saw God's person in verse 9. Now we're going to see God's plan in verse 10. God's plan. Let's begin with the first three words, your kingdom come. That's an incredible statement that opens up something so vastly beyond us that we could never conceive of all that is contained in that simple statement. Your kingdom come is expressed to the one who has the right to reign and to rule uh, and who is none other than the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire should be to see the Lord reigning as king in his heaven, to have the honor and authority that have always been his, but that he has yet to come to claim. The, the king is inseparable from his kingdom. So then to pray your kingdom come is to pray for the plan of the eternal deity to be fulfilled, for Christ to come and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. His plan and program should be the preoccupation of our lives and our prayers. You see, God the Father seeks this. In Psalm 2.6, God said, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In other words, God says he's exalting his son, the king. Verses 7 and 8 continue, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. What was that scripture again? That's Psalm 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. You see, God wants to give the kingdom of the world to his son. Uh, he desires to set his son, his king, on the holy hill of Zion to reign on the throne of David. When David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, but the Lord said to him, no, you can't do that because you're a man of warfare and bloodshed. Uh, I'm not going to let you do that. So God removed him from that great joy. And in return, God gave him a great promise in 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13 that would take place after David's death. God told him through the prophet Nathan, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so the promise of the kingdom of the eternal son is given in the Old Testament, not just there, but many times. In fact, throughout, all throughout the Old Testament, there is the promise of a coming king. 
We read earlier, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And it says, And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. And back when we started studying Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1 begins with these words, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in verse 116, chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. That is one with the right to reign and rule. So God's plan centers on a person. It's not a plan without a person. It's not a program without a person. A person will come forth to reign as king of kings and the Lord of lords. That was the hope of Israel. That is the hope of the church. That is the hope of the world. The return and reign of Jesus Christ is the consummation of history. And so to pray your kingdom come is nothing more, nothing less than praying Christ reign here and now. That's what this is saying, and we'll see that as we move through this verse. So then a true child of God concerns himself not so much with his own plans, his own desires, as he does with the determinate program and plan of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Praying correctly is not letting God in on your plans. It's calling God to fulfill his own plans. Your kingdom come. It takes quite a transformation in the life of a believer to come to the place where instead of saying, my kingdom come, he says, your kingdom comes. Well, we may say, your kingdom comes in words, but I sometimes wonder if sometimes our prayers aren't literally filled with our own kingdom. Our own plans, our own rule, our own reign, our own causes. And yet all of history, all of redemptive history is moving towards the consummation, the return of Christ. His cause, his program, his plans are to be our preoccupation. Did you ever notice, though, how that goes against your human nature? Have you ever noticed how much your prayers are filled with yourself? You ever notice how you rush into God's presence to unload on him your needs, your causes, your concerns? That's just the way our human nature works. Because we have a natural bent towards self. The fallen world doesn't even pretend it doesn't have that bent. You hear it all the time on TV commercials. You need to buy this item for yourself. You deserve it. It's time to think about what you want. And the implication is stop thinking about what others want or need and serve yourself. You've been serving others for far too long. Start serving your own desires. That kind of thinking sells products because every one of us has a natural falling craving to serve ourselves rather than others. The whole of human society has a selfish, self-centered orientation that knows very little about any other pronouns than me, mine, my, and I. And so when God invades a life, 
all of a sudden you come face to face with a command of the word of God that when you pray, it isn't me, mine, my, and I, it's your name be hallowed and your will be done and your kingdom come. And that goes against our grain. And then when you have false teachers coming along, telling us that we are to go to God and demand certain things, and we're to claim certain things and affirm certain things and force God to do certain things, creates a mess. It's a total miscomprehension of all that God has ever designed and planned to do in human history, which is to glorify his own name, his own cause, his own will, and his own son, Jesus Christ. Now, when someone sincerely believes and genuinely confesses Christ as Lord and King in his or her life, that's what salvation does. Salvation isn't simply taking Jesus as Savior, but uh, not as Lord. Salvation isn't simply coming to Jesus and saying, I'll make you my Savior. You don't make him anything. I'll make you Lord in my life. You don't do that. Salvation is to confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, according to Romans 10.9. And when you do that, the indwelling Spirit of God brings you into an affirmation that the direction of your life is toward the exaltation of Jesus as the Lord of your life, and your own causes are only valid insofar as they agree with and are in accord with the eternal causes of God to be revealed in Christ. Well, let's stop. Let's stop. We'll pick it up and I'll review this next week. Yes. Uh, that second Samuel, did I mention second Samuel? 12, 13. Did I say 12, 13? And that's not good. I said second Samuel 7. 12 and 13. Let me find a, where I left off. There it is. Got to put in a... There we go. Any comments or questions before we go? Yeah, you, you're not going to talk or teach the next three weeks now, I guess, so we won't miss anything. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>